Hello and welcome back to the Maluli Asset Podcast. This is episode 408. I'm back in in chair number one, I guess, this week. Uh, this is your regular host, Casey Maluli. Shout out to him for filling in for me last week. We've got Brendan here in, in chair two. We're more, gonna. I'm more of a color commentary guy. I missed you last week. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, you know, me and Tim held it down, but uh, you guys did great. Good to have you back. So. Tom and I did a podcast about two months ago where we discussed the the recent sluggish economic news and, and how the stock market typically moves ahead of the economy, both to the downside and the upside. And we keep getting questions and, and we want to talk about this stuff and, and share how we're thinking about it and how we're viewing it. So um, apologies if... You're getting tired of hearing the same old stuff from us, but that's our job is to communicate these things. So the story is, is pretty much the same as it was two months ago. Brent, you and Tim talked last week about how um, about the Fed's Jackson Hole comments and how we might be seeing an inflation peaking, but the Fed is still talking tough and saying that they're far from far from done in, in terms of hiking interest rates. I also wanted to, to remind folks about how just because the Fed is hiking rates doesn't necessarily mean that it's having the, it's not like an immediate impact on the economy. I remember um, back when they first started hiking earlier this year, um, we talked about how that time frame is usually nine months to a year for monetary policy to work its way through the economy. The first rate hike was in March. And here we are in September. So it's really not going to be until 2023 where we're getting the impacts or the benefits or, you know, it could be could be the drawbacks too. the drawbacks of of these rate hikes. Yeah. So I know we've seen the 10 year benchmark yield and mortgage rates have acted uh, pretty volatilely. So it, it seems like in some areas it is responding and in some areas it isn't. It's kind of a. It's tough to tell. It could be kind of like a placebo effect, too, because it's like the Fed has been hiking rates and it's definitely feeding through to things like like housing, I think, has uh, you know, shown shown signs of being impacted by mortgage rates going up, which is directly a result of the Fed raising you know their benchmark interest rate uh, and, and bond performance uh, reacting to moves in interest rates. Same kind of a thing. Um, but also. If some of the some of the things that were feeding into inflation earlier this year are just like cooling off on their own. Uh, kind of like you know we've seen the price of oil uh, really uh, come down since the peak uh, in spring summertime, and and gas prices have begun to reflect that, and that's a component of of inflation. And so like how much of it how much of it is a result of what the Fed is doing, and how much of it is just time healing the wounds, so to speak. Yeah, that's a good question. I know that we've seen some things like shipping times and used car sales, and uh, we're seeing some of those numbers roll over as well as, like you mentioned, things like oil and gas prices. So that's all contributing to to narrative that inflation is peaking, but it's going to be a while until we see these numbers come down. It's also going to be one thing to see it come down from where it is uh, around eight, nine percent, you know, five or six percent would feel pretty good, relatively speaking. But the Fed's ultimate goal is to get it back down to two percent. So I think it's still going to be 
a while until we see it back down in that range. I think that's what the market has been working through to jump back to something you said at the at the beginning. It's yeah, the story has been the same for a couple months now as the market has chopped up and down and 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 tried to seemingly like make up its mind whether or not it thinks uh, inflation is peaking or if the Fed is going to do too much to accomplish uh, that goal of cooling off inflation and send us into a recession. And you said, uh, I think it's correct that uh, the stock market moves in advance of of the economic data in both directions. And it's basically it's trying to do that in real time now. And that's the frustrating reality we have to live with is we get uh, harsh comments from uh, some would say harsh comments. I would say it was the Fed saying the same thing they've been saying for the last couple of months. They said it last week. Everybody got sad and stocks, stocks sold off because, uh, you know, I, I think the interpretation was folks are, folks are worried that uh, the Fed might take this too far and, and keep hiking uh, at the magnitude they have been for the last couple of meetings through the fall and send us into a recession. So the market's trying to sniff that out ahead of time because the market does just that. It does yeah. it ahead of time. And then on, on the flip side is we've gotten a couple of uh, economic data points prior to last week's comments that showed, hey, inflation is coming down. And some people were like, wow, maybe the Fed is going to pull off this soft landing thing. And the market was up as a result of that. Again, the market trying to sniff out whether maybe we are through the worst of it uh, after all. So that's like we have to deal with that. And, and the result is up this week, down last week, vice versa, and it's just this choppy market that we've been living through. If you look at it, if you look at a chart of what the S and P five hundred has done, uh, you know, over over the summer months, it's a lot of back and forth in the same range. At times, it's felt like we've made a definitive uh, move in one direction or the other. But it, if I think you're right that if you look at it, we've been at the same point in terms of price levels a couple different times this year. And uh, it's felt different because, you know, earlier on in the year, we were on our way down. And then through uh, the back half of the summer, we were back on the way up. And so uh, the same price levels can feel different depending on which direction we're going in, moving through them. But uh, there hasn't been a lot to speak of in terms of direction. I think that's a change from the last couple of years because we've gotten so used to those definitive uh, market bottoms where we yeah, hit the it and then, and then we never look back. Exactly, the Vs. And uh, we haven't had a V this year. I don't even think... Remember we were talking about the the shape of the economic recovery like two years ago and it was like are we going to be a u or a v or a w and or a k yeah or a k <laughs> we i don't even think we've had it it's just been a very squiggly line in terms of at least what the market is doing as it digests what the economy is doing yeah so with all that being said i wanted to share some interesting statistics from Charlie Bellello, who is a, a great financial writer that we all uh, that we all read and, and pay attention to, and, and he shared this post last month about what it's like investing during recessions. And I know we're not technically in a recession at this point, but I think the thought process is is still helpful, and and the data points are still might help people think about how to do exactly that. So since 1871, there have been 30 recessions in the U.S., averaging one every five years. Mm -hmm. I think that alone is a good statistic for people to keep in their back pockets. It's good context. I mean, uh, just, just as an aside, we talk to people who are 
uh, entering retirement about how to invest now that they're going to be living off of their money. And, and uh, I think to appropriately set expectations, we're coaching them to anticipate things like bear markets and recessions sometimes go hand in hand, sometimes they are separate things. Um, but, you know, over a 20, 30 year retirement, we're going to go through several of those. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and we should expect it. And we build our plans expecting those things. And, and we're not expecting to jump in and jump out and miss all of them, as I think. Uh, it's funny you stats, should say that. Yeah. The, the stats bear that out a bit. Uh, before we get to that, in, in spite of the fact that there's been 30 recessions in that a uh, hundred and fifty year time period. The average return of the S and P five hundred is six point nine percent, just under seven percent. So, like we said, it's all baked in there, and that's after adjusting for inflation. Pretty good. So, getting to the trying to sidestep the recessions. Charlie looked at since the depression. If you were to time every single recession perfectly, if you were able to get out and then get back in, you would have underperformed just the buy and hold strategy. So the timing strategy of getting out and then getting back in would have returned 10.6% and the buy and hold strategy over that time period would have returned 11.7%. I know that back tests like these aren't, aren't reality, but it's a pretty, uh, counterintuitive statistic you think it would be the the opposite and dramatically so yeah but, oh if we had perfect foresight and we could hop out uh avoid recessionary periods uh in the, in the stock market or in the economy and as a result with our investments in the stock market that we would do far better than just sitting tight and and riding it out and uh it doesn't doesn't seem to be the case so this is because of that fact that the stock market moves ahead of the economy mm-hmm. and Ember is the one who declares when a recession starts and when a recession ends. They can only do that in hindsight. They're they're not telling us in real time that we're in one because economic data comes into us on a lag. Exactly. So, yeah. So if you looked at the dates that recessions technically began by their definition, uh, you were late getting out and then you were probably late getting back in too because by the time they've declared it over, uh, in, in a lot of cases, the market has bottomed and in a dramatic fashion. So during the last six recessions, this was 2020, 2008, 2009, 2001, 1990, 1981 to 1982, and 1980. Mm-hmm. During those last six recessions, the S&P 500 has gained an average of 61% from its low by the time the official end of the recession was declared by Ember. Yeah. 61% move. Wild, and I think that you know we hear a lot during difficult periods in the market the idea of getting out until the coast is clear, and and just to that point that you've made, it's tough to determine when the coast is clear, and often by the time we're all talking about the worst being behind us, it's really really behind us. Yeah, <laughs> um, and and usually the the best time to buy is when we're still getting bad economic data. Um, because it's only it's only later on that we are able to see the incremental improvements that bring us out of those periods of time. It's it's so it's so impossible to use that as an investing framework of getting out when things are scary and and waiting for the dust to settle. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. So, just one more here from Charlie, and and thanks again, Charlie, for putting all this information together. 
Let's say instead that you were early getting out and that you would get back in a year after the recession had ended. Mm. So you were out a year before it started and in a year after it ended. Right. So kind of in reference to what we just said. So in, in this one, rather than being late getting out, like like the first example that, that you walked through, in this one... You're early, but you're still late getting back in. Right. Like you, you, you nailed the exit, but then you're a little too timid to jump back into the pool when things are looking better. Yep. So you would have averaged a 9% return per year. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. Yeah. But you would have underperformed buy and hold again, which would have returned 9.7% right. annualized per year. And I don't think that the numbers fully bear out what that experience is like of trying to jump back in when you've made the decision to get out. Because the decision to get out, you're, you're taking in a lot of uh, negativity when, when, when you're making that decision. And so um, you've kind of settled yourself in the bearish negative camp at that point. So to be able to do an about face and say that you're then bullish uh, on the prospects of the economy and the stock market at a certain point while the data still looks like garbage and stocks are probably still going down or just starting to go back up. It just, you know, we've even seen those narratives in the in the small bit of chop that we've had in the market here for just a handful of months in the sense that, uh, you know, things things start going back up again for a few weeks and people are like, oh, dead cat bounce bear market rally. And it's like, how do we know? We don't know those things until after the fact. Or was that the bottom? Or it was, yes, exactly. And so trying to make those decisions, I think you're you're choosing to play a game that's difficult that you don't have to play to get good returns in the market. What's the old saying? Bulls make money, bears make money, pigs get slaughtered. That's it. Can't be both. That's true. So one more statistic here. This one is from Ryan Dietrich over at uh, Carson Wealth Group. Um, And this one looks at how stocks do after midterm elections. Basically, the idea is that another investing cliche is is markets hate uncertainty, whether or not it's going to be a Democrat or Republican controlled Senate or House or or what's going to happen. Basically, it's, it's the idea that markets, it doesn't really matter and that markets just want to get through that uncertainty um, so once, once we know, we can start planning. Because exactly. Because we all like to look ahead and think about how things might happen, even though our predictions are probably uh, not really worth much at all. But it, it gives us some clarity about what the future might look like. Yeah. So Ryan looked at how stocks do the year after midterm elections. And this was going back to 1946. And... Every single year, the year after midterm elections, the S&P 500 is up to varying degrees. It varies from barely up to up 33%. Right. But it goes to show that, that there is some merit to the idea that stocks do actually hate uncertainty. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough because there's always uncertainty if, if you're out there looking for it. But I guess in particular, it seems like the data bears out that this political uncertainty is, uh, is maybe, maybe, maybe it is a factor. Yeah. So we get through the elections, we know who's going to have control, whether it's one party or the other for the next couple of years, and what the likelihood of uh, any, any proposed legislation that's been on the table getting through, not getting through, that sort of a thing. And it's, if it's worked out that way since the 40s, then it's gone in every direction, both, ways, yep. both parties. So, uh, you know, it, I think 
point point well made that uh, you know it's just one less thing that we have to worry about when we're through a period of time like that. Yep. So everyone's got that to look forward to. Uh, we're recording this here in September, so, so we still have you know a couple weeks here or about two months until those midterm elections actually take place. But uh, as the information there from Ryan shows, we could be set up nicely for a, a good a good bounce back year in 2023. We know that. We've been talking about this kind of stuff a lot here in 2022, but the one thing that all bear markets and all rough cycles have in common is that they all precede the next move up in the market and the next bull market. They all end. They all end at some point in time. So I think that's going to wrap it up here this week. Bren, I know we don't have Tim on the mic, so I'd be interested to get his take on this, but the NFL season starts tonight. What do you think the Jets are going to do here in the 2022-2023 season? Uh, I mean, I would take I would take 500 as some progress, but uh, I guess they're they're going to be without uh, Zach Wilson until Week Four, which was a surprise we heard about this week. So I guess it's uh, in in Flacco we trust for for a couple of games here. Yeah. Uh, We'll see. They got some new exciting rookies on offense. I think the team should be more fun this season. Yeah. Um, I'm not getting pinned down to a win total because right. the Jets. <laughs> I'll circle back with Tim next week and, uh, and report yeah. back. We do have to go back and revisit our Mets pre- uh, predictions because we're getting to the end here, and I think I was the only one who predicted over 100 wins. Wow. So, okay. Uh, hey, you might be right. We'll I, see. I hope you are. Yeah. So thanks, as always, for listening. This was episode 408 of the Maluli Asset Podcast. We'll be back with you for 409 next week. Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.